You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit make these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the super light tree runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the super light tree runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com, code SUPER24. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Great War interview. This will be a first in a series of interviews where I chatted with the authors of a series of books being released by the Great War Group. The series is called Great War Group Introductions, and they are structured as books that are approachable to readers of any knowledge level about the Great War. Today I was joined by Nikolai Eberholst, who has written a book titled simply Austria-Hungary. The book is an overview of the experiences of Austria-Hungary during the war, the challenges that it faced, and an evaluation of its performance during the conflict. Austria-Hungary's role in the start of the war is probably the most covered part of its entire experience in the conflict. The entire course of events in July 1914 is, of course, a topic far too large for an introduction to an interview. But by the end of the second week of August, Austria-Hungary would be at war with Serbia, Russia, Britain, France, and Montenegro. In the years that followed, Italy and Romania and the United States, along with several other nations, would follow. As a general overview of the course of the war, when the war began, Austria-Hungary would attack Serbia, while also defending itself from the Russian attacks in Galicia. In both cases, these efforts would be classified as a failure. And in Serbia, the attacks would fail to remove the small Balkan nation from the war, while in the east, the Russian advance would overrun much of Galicia. These failures against Russia would be the setup for the disastrous Carpathian campaigns during the winter of 1914-1915. The fighting that would occur over the winter, with the Austrians attempting to push the Russians back to relieve the beleaguered fortress of Shimashal, would be done in some of the worst conditions of the entire war. To say that men literally froze to death during the attacks is not an exaggeration. The result of the first six months of the war was disastrous for the Austro-Hungarian army. The total number of casualties among Austro-Hungarian armies engaged in the theater of, of the Carpathians was around 50%, a staggering percentage, even by First World War standards. After the disasters against the Russians, in early 1915, Italy would join the war against Austria-Hungary, adding another problem that had to be handled. The fighting along the two nations' shared border along the Asanzo is infamous for its futility and suffering. 
The fighting is often portrayed from the Italian perspective, often, you know, really questioning <laughs> why they would attack in the same area 11 times. While I don't disagree with that mindset, it is at least does say something positive for the Austro-Hungarian troops that were defending against the Italian attacks. On the Italian front, the Empire's troops would prove to be an incredibly resilient force and able to match Italian aggression with constant counterattacks and a brutally violent defense. On the Russian front, there would be both successes and failures. The Gorlis Tarnov Offensive of May 1915, launched in conjunction with the German army, would be an incredible success. Then in 1916, the Brusilov Offensive would result in a major defeat, although it would once again be a defeat that the Austro-Hungarian army would eventually recover from to prevent further Russian advances. 1917 would be the years of the great victories for Austria-Hungary, with the Russian summer offensives being stopped very quickly and then the great victory of Caporetto. Caporetto would be the first major change in the Italian front since the beginning of the war, but Italy would still remain in the war. 1918 would then be a very tough year for Austria-Hungary, with economic problems around food and industrial production nearly grinding everything to a halt. So many essentials for both life and fighting became almost unheard of in Austria-Hungary by the end of the war, and by the time of the final offensive of the war, which were targeted at Austria-Hungary, soldiers at the front were being issued paper underwear and were on ration levels that were simply non-sustaining. Over the course of the interview, we talk at some length about the evaluation and perception of Austria-Hungary's performance and contribution to the war. It's a topic that's often tainted by the shadow of the empire's early failures and a general focus on histories on telling the story of the war from the perspective of Austro-Hungarian enemies. After the interview, if you would like to find out more about Austria-Hungary during the war, check out the link in the episode description or head on over to greatwargroup.com where you can find a list of all of the Great War Group introductions, which I'm told are going to be shipping on October 11th, which is today. Hey everyone, I'm a busy person. Kids, job, a podcast you may have heard of, and because I'm so busy sometimes I just do not want to cook, and that's why I'm here to talk to you about Factor. They are America's number one ready-to-eat meal kit. I can tell you about how awesome the creamy pesto pork chop is, or how delicious the turkey chili and zucchini was, but everything I've tried from Factor tastes great. I think the part that surprised me the most is that after I ate them, I felt satisfied. I don't know of too many things that are ready in two minutes that leave me feeling great like Factor does. Factor has 34 plus delicious menu options that make my life easier and honestly healthier, and really I need both of those things. So head over to factormeals.com gw50 and use code GW50 to get 50% off. That's code GW50 at factormeals.com slash GW50 to get 50% off. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. That means more comfort and less baggage. Experience how Allbirds is redefining comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to another History of the Great War interview. This time, I am joined by Nikolai Eberholst, the author of Austria-Hungary, which is coming from the Great War Group Introductions book series that's coming out soonish. Uh, if you're listening to this episode on release, uh, and also the creator of the Pike Gray 1418 Twitter account, which has been going on since July 2017 and is a fantastic source for random pictures of the Austro-Hungarian army during the war and other Eastern European matters. Um, so I just want to start off this interview, we you know, with what has drawn you to the history of Austria-Hungary during the First World War? Yeah, I, I actually started um, being interested more in World War Two, uh, and then then I, I slowly got more in, into into World War One, and I just found that um, I've always I've always been drawn to the odd things uh, in whatever topic that I that I. Uh, dive on to uh so so i've never really it wasn't the, the western front that that caught my interest it was all it was first the italian front and then of course from 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 there uh going on the fact that i spoke german <laughs> or spoke well at least understood and read german uh and not italian sort of picked it for me in that way, but I've always been been going for for the the odd things, uh, not not the one that that everybody else is trying to do, and trying to find a, a place where I can see that there is something that I feel needs to be like a story that needs to be told that isn't being told um, as much. Of course, there are other people talking about it. It's not not a unique idea to talk about Austria-Hungary, but but uh, but of course, it's much more. Um, uh, focused that is the history of the first world war on the western front and on on britain uh, and this and then of course you i can go and 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 focus on 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 germany as the other part but then why not take one step further and go for the other one <laughs> uh on that alliance so yeah that's how i, I got into it and then i just um, just found my my niche point Excellent, excellent. Yeah, I've, I've really enjoyed sort of uh, following your Twitter account over the years and seeing the the pictures that you know you surface uh, on that account that that show what what it was like uh, over on the other side uh, of the war. Yeah, I think I think um, purely for because that that's just a, a way to <laughs> to. to promote myself and build a following and and do things of course uh on twitter it's not the only thing but i i do think that that we can learn a lot by by seeing and like a visual representation of of this whole other thing that for most people seem like something completely foreign that they haven't seen before because you can see the differences in in i get so many comments on how uh, for example, trenches look different in on the eastern front than on the western front. You see how uh, many comments about, oh, are they still wearing cloth hats in 1916? Yes, of course they are, because it's it's a whole different kind of war and a, and a whole different kind of of uh, economical power behind the army. Um, so so there are a lot of different aspects that by showing a photo you can get into a conversation with people, uh, and 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 talk about like what what is the differences and, and and bring it up that way so so while it is not the the only thing that i i do show pictures uh, i think it really 
works in a good way to start the conversation. So, so speaking of sort of Austria-Hungary in the war, so what were their plans in the event of a war? So everybody kind of knew that a war was probably going to happen at some point. Everybody was kind of thinking about it. So how had they prepared for a conflict and what were they planning to do should it occur? Yeah, if we start with the, the, the preparation, because I think that, that that is what determines a lot of the, the Austro-Hungarian war planning at the time. Austria-Hungary is, of course, this um, this split uh, nation. It's a dual monarchy with two halves, one, one control. One is Hungary and one is Austria, as the name implies. Uh, and there is a lot of tension between these two. And the Hungarians, uh, for a long time before, are very strict on the budget for the military because they feel the military is being controlled mainly by the Austrian, the, the Austro-Germans, or the Germans, if you call it a, as a nationality. But, but um, they, they're feeling that they are the ones who are controlling it, and they are very reluctant to give a lot of... of uh, of money to the army, feeling that the army could be used to to you know uh, quell uh, Hungarian independence and uh, and and their um, their sort of sovereignty within within the uh, the dual monarchy. So there isn't a lot of money to go by, which means that the army is the peacetime army uh, is is quite small. It's only about four hundred and fifty thousand um, people for for an enormous empire with a lot of of of, uh, of inhabitants uh, there, there are 50 million people around 50 million people in uh, in 1914 in austria hungary it's the third most populous country in europe at the time only after germany and russia um so but but it's a very very small army um it also means that the percentage of of people going into the armed services uh, like the number of, of men per per thousand or something is much lower in in Austria-Hungary than it is in, in in a lot of the other countries, which means that Austria doesn't have a uh, a lot of people to to draw on once uh, mobilization is is declared. Um, one one other thing they will run out of is of course uh, reserves when um, when uh, when casualties casualties comes in and then you have to replace the ones who are going off in the in in the first place. You don't have the men already trained and already prepared for it. Uh, at least you don't have enough. And Austria-Hungary is going to need a lot very, very quickly. But because they have this small army, uh, as, as I said, 450,000 uh, in a peacetime army, and upon mobilization, it goes up to about like 1.8 million, uh, which is still a relatively small army. It's about uh, divided into... Um, uh roughly 60 divisions uh some like 40 48 or something infantry and 11 cavalry or something like that um but for example france will have 88 divisions upon mobilization um and they're they're a country with with fewer inhabitants so so it is a small army and of course austria hungary is also a country that due to political tensions we shouldn't get too much into now, but it is a country that is already realizing in the in the years before the war that they're being surrounded by hostile powers. Uh, I mean, pretty much everybody is a potential enemy for Austria-Hungary, except for Germany, which is their ally, and uh, neutral Switzerland, which is probably not going to be uh, 
an issue. Uh, even even countries like Italy, who is a, a let, let's call them a public um, ally, they don't really trust them to begin with. And then uh, Romania, which is sort of a secret ally, they have a they have a, a secret treaty with with the king uh, that that he's going to support, and it, which also doesn't come to anything, of course, when war is declared. But even those two countries are some. Yeah, there might be actually come a war after all, even though we are allies. Um, so they're facing um, either a very local war with just one power, which could most realistically be something like Serbia or Italy or Russia. Those are the the main ones they're working with uh, in the in their war planning. But it's very likely that it will become a multi-front war very quickly. And um, because they have a very small army, they they have about six field armies is what, what, what they will be divided into in the event of war. They really quickly realize that if a multiple uh, front war comes, uh, they won't have the, the necessary armies to be fully prepared on every single front, um, which means that 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 um, that the planners, the the uh, the general staff, doesn't have enough men at the start to do exactly what they want, which is of course to go on the offensive anywhere. So what they're planning is they're writing up different scenarios, uh, different war plans. So they will have a War plan S, uh, or sorry, a war, war plan B for the Balkans, uh, which of course, why I say S is because it's mainly uh, to, towards Serbia. Uh, then a, a, a war plan R, which is against Russia. They will also have one one I against Italy, um, and then they will also have uh, something like a R plus S. So if it's both of them together working together, which is the most uh, likely scenario that that that's the sorry I said S again the <laughs> B plus R uh, would be Serbia plus uh, Russia against Austria Hungary and then they're trying to build as much flexibility into their war plans as possible um, uh, during peacetime so that they will be able to react when things get rolling if one country uh, joins the war against them. Uh, they can do one thing. If it then changes, they should be able to do something else. Um, so what they do is they divide their army into three parts. Um, they have what is called the Minimal Group of Balkan, which is uh, consists of, of, of two armies which will deploy on the um, the, uh, the Serbian front in, in, in Bosnia and Dalmatia um, against uh, Montenegro and Serbia, effectively. Uh, then they have the A group, which will is the largest, uh, more than half the army, um, consisting of three armies in total, will deploy on the uh, the what will be the eastern front in in Austria-Hungary. We actually talk, they actually talk about it as the northern front, uh, which can be a bit confusing, but but for most people, let's talk about it as as the eastern front against Russia. They will deploy in in Galicia and um, and be ready to move there. And then they have the the flexibility uh, part, which is the the B group, consists of the second army, uh, which can either move to Serbia if you want to go on the offensive there, or they can go to Galicia uh, against Russia if you need them there. So that's how they, how they're planning to do it and trying to build in the flexibility so that 
depending on what, what happens, they will have men enough in either place. Of course, this goes horribly wrong when, when, when war is declared um, because they sort of... Russia isn't in it to begin with, and, and the uh, the Austro-Hungarian uh, chief of the general staff, uh, Konrad von Hützendorf, he um, decides that he will try to, to strike a very quick blow against Serbia first. So what he does is, upon uh, declaration of war with Serbia, uh, he, uh, he decides to mobilize the Minimalgruppe Balkan, which is the two armies uh, against uh, Serbia and Montenegro, and then sent the B group to Serbia. Then, uh, of course, things move on, and over the next couple of days, it becomes pretty clear that that Russia will join in in this war against uh, Germany and and Austria-Hungary, and intervene in this. Uh, so, so they decide to change it up and say, okay, we have to send uh, th- this uh, uh, um, B group, the flexibility group back to Galicia, because that's where we have to do it now. But at that point, you've already started the mobilization of the A group, which means that they have to finish first because you don't have the rolling stuff. You don't have enough of, of all of this to, to to go about it. And and they will have to fully deploy before you can start moving this force that has been sent to the wrong place, essentially, because now it's much more serious what's happening in the East than what's happening in the Balkans all of a sudden. Um, what essentially happens is that this this one army they're desperately needing an army uh, extra everywhere because they they don't have enough and they basically waste the whole of of August and September moving one of their six armies all over the place and it doesn't really participate in anything it's it's in the balkan too short to actually do anything and make a difference there and it only arrives in galicia to take part in the defeat so mm-hmm. Even the, even with even with the fewer armies and the too few people, they even waste uh, s- some of that uh, just messing up the mobilization and the planning. Yeah, I, th- I feel like you know, reading about sort of Austria-Hungary's position before the war and when the war starts, they they don't have enough resources to do everything that they want to do, but then they make the worst possible decision, which is not just committing to something. Like with your reserves, you need to. Pick a spot and go, not sort of flip flop right in the middle, uh, causing the worst possible scenario. Yeah, it it, it really is that exact uh, the problem that they they do end up really making the worst choices that you that they can in the situation that they're in, and their their attempt, which is not an unreasonable uh, and not not a dumb attempt given their situation, to build in flexibility sort of becomes a big issue because it doesn't work out. Of course, you can always go back and say, oh, they should have known that Russia would come in and they should have just done that. But yeah, it's easy to do in hindsight. And and I think we can all, all agree that, that it is not the right decision that is made. And they should have thought about it and they shouldn't have focused on on Serbia as much as they did. But then again, Serbia is the main enemy. That is why they started the war. And there is a belief that they might actually be able to launch this quick offensive before Russia is ready. But Russia is much faster in mobilization, uh, in mobilizing their own forces than anybody expects, which means that suddenly you have to move uh, all your forces east. 
then again, you also have a really bad cooperation or coordination between uh, Germany and Austria, meaning that there isn't really a good agreement of what is going to happen here. And this, um, I mean, the, the Austrians are not completely involved in this whole German Schlieffen plan idea of sending everything west first and leaving the east uh, relatively undefended except for for a single army in, in East Prussia. They are not thinking all the time that, oh, we have to carry the whole load in the east to begin with. Um, they're... they're and and again, you can criticize it and you can look and did they not know and was it just, did it just play into to, to, uh, to, uh, Chief of General Staff Conrad's um, uh, way of, 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 of telling the story later to say that there wasn't this, but, but there's an, he has an idea that there will be a coordinated attack from uh, both sides in the east. Of course, this is unrealistic given that the Germans only have one army. Uh, but the, the plans are not really written for that. For that. So, so there are things that you don't know and, and things where you can say, okay, that's stupid. Yeah, but you don't know until it, it gets going completely. Yeah, well, absolutely. I could not, could not agree more. So, so you kind of touch on it there a little bit, but the... I would say the overall perception of the Austro-Hungarian efforts during the war are not favorable, uh, bordering on complete failure. Um, do you think that this is a fair assessment of their contribution to the uh, sort of central powers of war effort? Both yes and no. I mean, you 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 can always look at all the bad ones, um, but a lot of it comes from a few things that go go wrong in the beginning. I mean, there, there are always issues in the Austro-Hungarian army with the leadership. The, uh, the the leadership has issues. There there are really bad generals in the Austro-Hungarian armies. There are also some very very good ones, some very good ones. But there are a lot of bad ones, and a lot of them are also in in quite high positions, which create a lot of problems, of course, as it would. Um, but as the German allies also always seem to admit, is that, the, that there's nothing wrong with the Austro-Hungarian soldier as a soldier. Uh, and when, when you look at how how the Austro-Hungarian soldier fights doing when he is uh, competently led either by his own or by, say, German forces, which have, uh, or, sorry, German generals, or in close cooperation with German uh, forces where... Um, um, which happens a lot in 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 the east, going from 1915 on. They're performing well, or as well as 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 their allies, um, uh, and they they they, they are uh, winning battles. Uh, it's when it's often when they're on their own, and when their uh, their their uh, chief uh, Conrad decides to go on these these already doomed unrealistic uh, adventures <laughs> one could be tempted to say um, but but these offensives that that everybody is saying oh that that shouldn't happen or the Germans are saying that this this is nuts you can't win this you, you can't do it but he wants to do it because he wants to win back some some prestige lost in in, in earlier battles and he wants to win his own battles and he doesn't want to, uh, Austria-Hungary to play second fiddle to Germany all the time and just be 
uh, a, a, a subordinate to German, Germany, which is also a legitimate position to take, given that it is a, an empire. It is not. It is not. Uh, it, it is not an alliance where it is. Uh, where it is already decided that Germany will be the main uh, one, and the others just have to follow. So, so you you, you can again criticize him for saying, "Oh, you should just go as, as the Germans want." But then again, that is also a, a lot to ask for 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 a country or an empire like Austria-Hungary to just submit fully uh, to the to the allies. Um, but yeah, if if you want to talk about like like what what goes wrong is and 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 how that affects the way it is, the whole as we talked about the whole bundling of the of the mobilization messes up things for Austria Hungary in both Serbia and in Galicia, and they lose a lot of people. Um, use about uh, lose in 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 total about a quarter of a million men within the first month and a half of the war. Which is an incredible amount of casualties to take for for a country that doesn't really have, as we said before, a prepared reserve. Um, they don't have the men to fill it up. They they have to to quickly uh, train new officers. The, the the casualties in Galicia amongst the officer corps is like seventy five percent. It is all the peacetime officers, all the peacetime trained soldiers. Uh, the well-trained ones, the ones who are, who've done the education, as as well as as we haven't really talked about, is a multi multinational army, and everybody speaks uh, different languages. And before the the war, there is a there is a requirement for officers to learn the languages of the men that they're commanding. That works well in peacetime, of course, but it doesn't work well when you have to 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 train new officers within a, a, a few weeks or, or or a few months they don't have the time to learn uh four or five different languages because they they're being sent to to a very um a very polyglot regiment um so, so of course you, you you don't have that so so because of these incredible casualties they have in the beginning because of some of the unpreparedness they do not rise again from the early blows and and when you then get into something like the bigger campaigns that that they participated in in 1915, like the Carpathians, where they lose they lose 800,000, they suffer 800,000 casualties in 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 a, a number of months. This is something that leaves the army completely depleted of everything, from you know uniforms to munitions to food to trained personnel. Uh, you have to to reduce the requirements for for or, or the um, the standards of of uh, of recruitment. You have to re- reduce the time that you train people. You have to reduce the amount of uh, like rifle rounds that they can fire before they go to the front. All of this will add on to them having to really uh, well not have to, but but that they will struggle a lot throughout the war with with already trying to to make up this whole uh mess that they they're in from the beginning but i mean if 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 we look at some of the the classic blunders it is the serbian campaigns in 1914 it's galicia we have the whole carpathians uh we have uh the brusilov offensive these are some of the major ones that that 
people think of where, where, where there's a lot of casualties, where it really goes wrong, where the Germans will have to come in and, and save them. But then there are also all the other ones in between, and some of them are a lot in between, where it actually goes quite well. Um, the uh, the Gorlitz-Satano offensive in the East is often portrayed as a German victory, but a lot of the soldiers uh, are, are Austro-Hungarian soldiers. There, there are Austro-Hungarian armies participating in it under German leadership, but there's a lot of, of Austro-Hungarian soldiers fighting these battles. Um, you have the um, the uh, Romanian campaign. Austro-Hungarian soldiers perform well. First Army uh, under uh, Arts von Stausenburg, who later becomes the Chief of General Staff after Conrad, does well in Romania. Um, then you, of course, have the... the the famous uh, defensive battles on the Asunso, the one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven uh, defensive victories for Austria-Hungary, uh, from which, which is a purely Austro-Hungarian front for most of the war, except for a very, very, very brief few months in, in 1917, from uh, yeah, September, where there isn't any battles, but in an active combat role, it's only from from late October to to the end of December that, that German troops are there in any significant numbers for the the Caporetto offensive. Um, but otherwise it's it's a it's a it's a purely Austro-Hungarian venture and they and they do well uh, and, and and fight well. And yes, you can always say that oh the you know God created the Italian army to uh, for, for Austria Hungary to have somebody to beat or the other way around. But they're they're not bad armies, and they they do fight well. And these battles are, are bloody, and and they swallow up a lot of resources. And they would have swallowed up a lot of resources of Germans as well. Um, and then you you can look at even even to the very last days of the war, Austria Hungary is fighting still. They have an incredible uh, durability in staying in despite all these casualties. They're in the war uh, until. Uh, November fourth, just a week before the Germans are out as well, um, and in in Italy, during the uh, the Vittorio Veneto offensive in October uh, and uh, and into November of 1917, there there are points of that front where they're fighting and and winning local fights, uh, defensive fights with barely any ammunition, no food at all, no no. No uniforms, basically just rags. Uh, men without boots and everything—they're still fighting, and they're still able to maintain their positions and, and hold on to uh, to to trenches and and make counterattacks and local counterattacks. You also have uh, a few divisions going to to the Western Front in the middle of 1918 uh, to fight the Americans and the, the French. Um, doing the uh, the uh, Saint Hill offensive and and doing the, the Musagon offensive uh, and they also perform well and are, are, are commended for for what they they're doing by the Germans and and by by newspapers around the world you have American newspapers saying that oh German Germany has been saved by Austria and these local positions uh, on, on some heights because they, they, they do fight well and they do I mean they, they have no chance of winning no chance at all but but they they're doing well and they they're fighting as well as they can delaying the enemy allowing other units to to retire to a better position 
all these things. So, so yeah, you can always laugh at Roger Hungary Hungary and say they're incompetent in this and that. But they did fight well, and they did last a very long time. I um, <clears throat> I generally think that they're kind of the the their legacy from the war in terms of on the military side of things is something where did they make some pretty big mistakes especially early on yes but the fact that they were able to recover in any meaningful way from that like first like catastrophic six or seven months is really impressive like you know given their sort of industrial base their manpower base their their sort of trained soldiers that they were working with that they were able to recover and still participate meaningfully in multiple different offensives on multiple different fronts over the next several years is is impressive. Yeah, I think the, you, you you touch on something important that they're 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 dealing they're, they're doing very well with what they're given to begin with. Uh, they don't have the industrial facilities uh, to to produce a lot of weapons and munitions and and all this this stuff immediately i mean they're, they're struggling to produce helmets in the end of the war and and, and basic equipment and so it, already in 15 they're producing um like uh, air assets uh, replacement mat- material uniforms and equipment and you know you, you get to the point where you're producing cardboard belts and uh, you know uh, uh bags and backpacks and stuff like that made of uh, like strings of paper that have been impregnated to resist water and stuff like that. Uh, and all these things that <laughs> does not make soldiers confident. <laughs> and, and, uh, and you, you, when you, when you take away the food and you take away the, uh, the warmth and security and all these things that, that disappear in the end uh, in the, in the, in the last, seven eight months primarily we, we really see a like a catastrophic situation on the on the italian front and of course also the other fronts but mainly on the italian front they, they, there really isn't anything left left but but the army still stays and it still goes on the offensive in in, in june 1918 a hopeless offensive again but 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 they go on a major offensive in 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 in, in june of 1918 and they do not break then and they they only break when the when the when the end is completely near basically and there is no way out anymore um mm-hmm. you mentioned all these sort of economic issues that are causing serious problems at the front uh in terms of food and supplies and everything uh, you know, in a lot of European nations, they all the, on the citizen side of things, on the home front, everybody was affected. So what was life like in Austria-Hungary uh, during the war? Did they also suffer from these same kinds of sort of critical shortages? Yes. Um, th- there are several factors that are, that are interesting about the, the home front when you talk about uh, Austria-Hungary. And... and... Uh, and some historians do talk about it as in home fronts because there's many different home fronts depending on where you are in this 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 multinational empire. Uh, it is not the same whether you live in 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 uh, in Bohemia or you live in Austria or you live in in Hungary. It's very different um, situation, uh, and and there there's of course many similarities as well, but. Austria-Hungary is, of course, as Germany and as Bulgaria and all these other uh, central powers, they, they're really suffering under the naval blockade. 
which uh, which uh, prevents them from importing food and and, and a lot of the the uh, materials, raw materials that they need to produce everything from things they need on the home front, things they need in the, in the, in, uh, in, the uh, in the war economy, in the war industry. Um, but uh, but there are also some really really poor administration of what they have, uh, and they 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 make a lot of mistakes that that just further the problem uh, along the way, and and. Um, there are also, uh, for Austrian Hungary, there's a very big difference of whether you live in the city or whether you live in, in, in the rural side. People in, in, in rural areas generally have a little more because they often have the ability to grow food themselves. Uh, the situation inside the cities in 1918 is horrible. There is nothing uh, left, in, which, of course, sparks riots, uh, strikes, uh, walkouts from factories, and, and so on and so on, furthering the, the, the problems at the front. Uh, um, and the and the issues they have in in supplying their armies, uh, but then you also have, of course, uh, for Austria Hungary, as you have in 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 many other countries, but maybe especially for Austria Hungary and 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 the countries that fight on the Eastern Front is that you have quite large zones of your country where the war is actually moving through um, at different times during the war. So Galicia is is one of them where the, where the whole thing changes hands a couple of times during the war, uh, from after the Battle of Galicia, where the the the, the Austro-Hungarian armies withdraw to the uh, Carpathian Mountains and and the area comes under Russian control, they lose a lot of farmland. This is like the main farm area, um, and 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 they lose a lot of that. It's damaged during the war. They don't recover it when they go back again and and retake it later in 1915. All these things uh, have an effect, and of course, it also has an effect on the people uh, who live in these areas, uh, who live in, in what is like the hinterland behind the front, the the zones behind the front. Um, also in Italy, and, and so the experiences are quite much more violent than it is anywhere else. Um, people there are subjected to. To really terrible atrocities, they're accused of spying for either side, whoever whoever is there at the time, accused them of being with the other people and helping them, and then and, and 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 so on and so on. So there are atrocities being being perpetrated on the civilian population in these areas. Um, when when the food start to go, when, when the economy crashes, when when all these uh, issues arise. Uh, or, you have much more steam going into this uh, this idea of being independent, getting out of this empire. Um, so, 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 yeah, the, the national tension and the, the the cry for independence, if you want, uh, really grows as a result of the economy and the the, the system, uh, if you will, crashing. And then you also have. Um, a, a, a large movement of people, um, which will also have an effect. For example, in in, in some of the big cities, you see a, a large influx of uh, of refugees from the east. A lot of uh, Eastern uh, Jewish people, and then the, that creates tensions be, between the the people living there and these new people who come, and you already don't have the food for it, and and. You know, you have a growing uh, anti-Semitism towards them. Uh, you have 
uh, Italians coming, like um, Italians and, and Ger- Germans living in the border area there who, who, who flee the area and they, of course, create tensions in some way here and there. So, so there are a lot of, of, of places where, where you have this uh, rise of tensions between the groups because of the war. Um, so the, the for the Hungary, the home front is not just one thing, it's a lot of different things uh, and really depending on where you are, but but pretty miserable for most people. It's not like uh, you, you have one group, even, even though they, during the war, a lot of people in Austria have this idea that in Hungary they're just hoarding the food and they just have it all and they they just don't want to share with us. But it's not always like like that. There there are some truths to, to it that there is a reluctance to to share what you have. But but things in Hungary is also pretty miserable. Um, and uh, you you of course always have this uh, when when things are going well for Austria Hungary and. And the central powers. You have this idea that, oh, when we get Romania, we'll get a lot of food, and we'll, we'll, we'll get this, uh, this uh, peace uh, with, uh, with Russia, and uh, we'll, we'll get a lot of food. You call it the bread peace, and, and, and there's this hope that every time, but it, it seems to always fail. That it, it, it is nearly as much as you want, or you don't have the people uh, to to cultivate the food, and you have have a lot of just wagons of grain standing somewhere and you can't really move them and they just uh, either rot or or, or or there isn't even enough to 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 feed the the occupation troops that that you need to have in the area to to make sure you get the food uh, a, there's a lot of this going on where you don't really get what you what you want and which of course results in in, in terrible conditions on the home front and the, and the actual uh, front line as well yeah, I remember reading about when Germany and Austria-Hungary moved into Ukraine after the peace with Russia and how they were, oh, we're going to get all this food that we can ship back to Germany, we can ship back to Austria, and then they could barely feed the soldiers that they sent there. Yeah, I mean, I mean goods. for example, Ro- Romania, it's all uh, war through, we're always running through the country uh, through most of 19, well, most of the second half of 1916 uh, war in, in in Ukraine, the war is going back and forth and uh, during the, the first three years of the war it, it's it's a constant movement of, of, of the war uh, and because of this this movement of war, which is another thing that we talk about when we talk about, for example, the Eastern Front contra the, the Western Front this, this uh, much longer going war of movement is that of course a lot of, of territory is being destroyed, a lot of cities are being destroyed. The the, the farmers, the, the people who who can do something about getting the food off the ground, uh, have all, all been scattered around. So, so there's a lot of issues there where you don't don't have what you expect because you have this idea that this will just be great, and in a minute we can just feed everybody. But then uh, you, you start fighting, and, and there's infighting between Germany and Austria-Hungary as well. When they take, a, a, like, who gets it? Who who's more important, Berlin or, or Vienna? Where should this this load of train, uh, this train load of, of grain go? Um, yeah, so so uh, uh, it creates a lot of problems as well, and it never delivers what it promises. Mm-hmm. And you know, all these problems on the home front, as you said, kind of um, exacerbated existing differences between various groups. And of course, after the war, the empire disintegrates into a number of, of mm-hmm. smaller nations. But during the course of the war, those areas, you know, they were still loyal to Vienna, if if I'm not mistaken. And, you know, 
those men from those areas still fought well in the army pretty much until the end. You know, is, is that an accurate assessment? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of discussion. It's a, it's a relatively recent um, uh, uh, way to look at this uh, this issue because for a long time after the war, a lot of the, the successor states uh, started to write their history of the war and it, it was much more um, focused on their, like the, the Czechs were writing about the Czech history of the war and and so on and so on. Um, the Hungarians were writing about the Hungarian experience, and 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 you get got this very uh, like so it's, some historians call it like a like a tribal history telling where you, where you tell it from only your own view. You don't really get the 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 big story of the entire country, and and, and with that there there comes this uh, need to talk about your own soldiers as, as fighting their fight for their country. This is most, most pronounced in, 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 um, in the Czech post-war literature because there is uh, uh, an independence movement during the war working for, for, uh, for an, an independent uh, uh, Czech nation or, or Czechoslovak nation um depending on uh, on who you ask but but um but there's an an a need to sort of emphasize uh to towards the the allies during the war that oh we're forced to fight and we don't really want to be on their side we're on your side and, and uh, to 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 gain uh support for for a nation for an independent nation state uh to the point where 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 a lot of Czechs considered themselves after the war as being having been part like having been on the side of the of the the entente of the allies um uh and from there grows the idea of okay they were all just fighting badly and they saw the first chance to run to the enemy and surrender and uh, and so on and so on but it's not really what we see when we when you look at the the cases that that are there and the the um the um, uh, the episodes that 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 are that are portrayed when when you go down and actually look at what happened it's it's, it's more common that it that something else happened um, so a, a unit that that was completely demoralized uh, and surrounded and had no other choice but surrender uh, after the war is portrayed as oh they just threw away their weapons and ran to the to the Russians and jumped into their trenches and started firing their, at their own side and so on and so on. Um, but but yeah, what what you see during the war is that pretty much all the different nationalities fight well, um, and you don't really see a mass desertion uh, of of any. Soldiers, you see local, of course, but but even in the end, in 1918, in 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 September, October, and stuff, when 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 you when you look at like why why I mean, and and the the Allies are doing this, uh, you know, when when they catch the uh, uh, that run to to their side, they interview them, and and some of the questions is why did you desert, and and and. The, the nationality thing doesn't really play a role at this point. It, it is, oh, we don't we don't want to fight anymore. We don't we don't want to die, or we don't have any food, uh, which all 
which are all valid reasons for 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 deserting but but you you it is not really seen in this sense that it is a a big issue in in that way and it is not something that affects the army's ability to fight as it is often being portrayed that it's just uh, you go, the army goes to the front and all the soldiers disappear and run away from their officers and they stand back and think what happened that's not an accurate depiction of what happens at all it is very much this um this uh, post war uh, historiography of the war and, and writing it in in a very uh, with a, with a very specific aim and a very specific story to tell yeah, and I guess at both like the official political level, there's uh, probably a, a desire for that uh, as they're working with other nations in the West being like, hey, look at how, you know, we were fighting with you this whole time. And there's also probably from like an individual soldier perspective, you know, a Czech soldier, even if he'd served well in the Austro-Hungarian army, probably didn't necessarily want to trumpet that to everyone around him after Czechoslovakia was created. He you know, probably works better for him if he talks about how much he was, you know, fighting for Czech freedom. Exactly. And even more so, for for example, if you were an Italian soldier or a Romanian soldier or one of these other soldiers who, who basically ended up fighting uh, against their uh, their motherland or father, fatherland or, 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 or uh, in that way, fighting against them. Um, but then you also have to recognize that there is also during the war, a lot of focus on from the Austro-Hungarian side, from, from, from the mainly German and, and Hungarian, often uh, called mainly German, but uh, Hungary as well. But, but this this distrust of its own soldiers, which is not founded, but it, 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 for example, throughout the war, there is a distrust of Czech soldiers. There is an idea that they are just waiting to run, which is also why this idea comes in the in the post-war because it becomes a very easy scapegoat to say oh we just lost because the czechs ran away oh we this operation failed because they were all czechs or they were not germans or they were not uh, hungarians or or whoever you are these these oh these were romanians and we're fighting in romania so of course we lost this this particular battle uh, and it, it can it can save the skin of a general sometimes to 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 blame it and they do all these um uh, well, they do a, the whole a whole big study of 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 the the the, the Czechs, for example, during the war, saying that like during study, uh, uh, many hundred pages on on the loyalty of Czech troops, and 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 don't really come up with anything that that there, there isn't this thing. But but of course, in the in the post-war uh, writings of of the war, uh, you have. Both, both the official history and the and the Germans saying that oh it was all the Czechs and the Czechs are uh, saying yes yes that that was us because we didn't want to fight you, uh, and and the, and the 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 truth or the uh, the reality is 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 buried because both sides are interested in it, in it being buried, uh, which is which is an interesting. Um, uh, mechanism in a way uh, in the in the way the story is told that uh, that is only very recently that that people have said oh let's look at these things and let, let's see oh that this is not what happened uh, and, and sometimes where Czechs are fighting uh, the Czech legions with the, which were made by recruiting uh, Czech uh, prisoners of war in 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 Russia uh, and Italy and and other places as well. Um, you, uh, you have battles where Czechs fight Czechs, and it is not 
it is it is hard to see a difference between the way a German regiment and a Czech regiment fought in those battles. Um, so, but you have this distrust throughout the war, this uh, distrust of your own soldiers. And, and during the war, there are, set, uh, there, there are a couple of regiments that are completely disbanded uh, by the emperor for being uh, not loyal. But uh, two, two of them, uh, uh, well, the two that are, uh, are, are both mainly Czech regiments. The most famous is the, the 28th Regiment, which... Uh, it's the one where you you hear the story of them, you know, marching to the Russian side with, with, with the, the the regimental band playing and the banners flying. It's not at all what happened. They are isolated in, in, <laughs> and completely demoralized and, and are surrounded and, and forced to surrender. But they're they're um, the the armies. They're struck from the from the army list of the of, of regiments and. It, and all that, but 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 what you see is, for example, in that case, they disband the whole regiment. But because there is a battalion, uh, like a like a replacement battalion, uh, on its way to 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 Russia, um, of Czech soldiers to to replenish this regiment, which which is more or less annihilated in 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 uh, in the Carpathians, they're diverted to the Italian front instead uh, and sent there. Where they perform extremely well because uh, there's a different conditions there. Generally, most of the most of the nations, because there there is an idea, there is something about Slavs not being too fond of fighting Russians, but pretty much all of them are very keen on fighting the Italians, uh, and they've performed very well on the Italian front uh, to the point where the, the regiment is raised from this battalion again, like they they. The, they're reinstated as a regiment because of what, what how well they perform uh, on the Italian front. They're they're, they're checks uh, as well. So you, you you can't see it like that. You can't say that one one na- nationality fought worse than others. And especially when you go to the end of the war, where where you can see who is leaving. Well, it's not always just the uh, like some of the places where people fight the longest. It's very mixed. Uh, there's Czechs and Poles and, and a lot of different ones. Some of the, the, the majority of the units sent to the Western Front are Romanians uh, fight, fighting the, the, the French and the, um, the, um, uh, the, the Americans. Uh, they are, the majority of those the regiments in those divisions that are sent there are from, uh, from Transylvania. So they're, they're sort of a mix of, of Romanians and, and, and Hungarians, but the majority of them are Romanians. Uh, and they perform very well there. It's it, it's always interesting to hear kind of how in the immediate post-war years, various groups and various nations sort of look back on their own participation. And that that story seems particularly complicated, as you've kind of just described, for Austria-Hungary due to all these other sort of factors that are involved uh, that aren't really present in a lot of the other nations that were sort of fighting in the war. Yeah, I mean, you do see see it. I mean, there's this idea that, that Austria-Hungary is this very multinational state, but it is nothing compared to Russia. It is much more uh, multinational and many different types of religions and, and languages. And I mean, there, there's a lot of tensions between Finnish soldiers in the Russian army and Estonians and Latvians and uh, Lithuanians and Polish regiments and uh, uh, and Tatars, uh, uh, people Muslim faith, and 
all these people recruited from from different areas. There's a lot of tensions there as well. It's just not not as well uh, researched yet in 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 the in in Western Western in English literature. Um, I'd say like like that because of course uh, Estonia and Finland has their own historiography where 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 this this plays a big role, uh, but it's not as well understood for in in the English readership. Germany as well have you know a Frenchman from from uh, from Alsace Lorraine. They have Poles. They have Danes. Um, uh, so, so there are uh, several multinational. Uh, empires, the Ottoman Empire is, of course, another one where you have all different ones where you have very big tensions where you have Armenian Armenians in the army um, as as well. Um, uh, of course, creating some some pronounced uh, tensions uh, between the different nationalities. But but I, it is it is a it it becomes very much a part because the empire breaks up as. As much as it does, all these different nationalities have a lot to say about it afterwards, and it becomes very clear uh, that that is a multinational empire that they all and it's, it is a focus point of of uh, of allied um, propaganda uh, efforts and and, uh, and and intelligence and so on to to try to undermine this this. Uh, this enemy by pushing these buttons and 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 making it making it a fight about independence and about uh, the dis, uh, the dismemberment of the uh, Habsburg Empire, um, so, so so it does play a, a much bigger role in our understanding than than maybe the others do.